Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast show. I'm your host, Sultan Ghaznawi. Today we are going to cover the alignment of demand for resources from sales and production and supply of these resources by vendor management. How do you find the right balance to make sure you don't have an over or under supply of resources to make sure ample production capacity? My guest today is Anna Carnegie-Brown, and she is the managing director of Sandberg, a language services company that is known as a large-scale, high-quality translation production expert in our industry. Anu is a Finnish translator by training and has worked at LSPs in Finland and the UK for the past 28 years. In her current role, she creates a strategy that inspires confidence in Sandberg and delivers profitable organic revenue growth for the company. She is passionate about the company's unique brand and about innovative ways for the translation industry partners to work together. In 2020, Nimsy featured her in the Global Localization Influencer Watchlist. Anu has volunteered at the UK Institute of Translation and Interpreting, where she represented corporate members and a committee that guides and supports translators and interpreters in their CPD efforts. She's a founding member of the ALIA Exchange Initiative and has acted as a mentor for women in localization. In 2013, she created an introduction to the translation industry course for the University of Helsinki in Finland and has taught it every year since then with a team of industry peers from Finnish translation companies. In the UK, at the University of Surrey, she helped create an annual innovation and business challenge workshop for the MA students of translation and is now working with them for the fifth year running. Impacting the pipeline that supplies human resources for our industry is one of her key interests. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm okay. I mean, it's the afternoon, end of the day, so I'm looking forward to um, a nice evening. But yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, that's a lovely accent. And where's that accent coming from? Well, I have been in the UK for well over 20 years now, but um, yeah, it comes from Finland. So that's where I, I was born and that's where I grew up. Let's do an introduction. Uh, tell us about who you are and what you do, Anu. Okay. So my name is Anu Carnegie-Brown. Um, I'm Managing Director of Sandberg. And uh, Sandberg is a language services company, and it's known in the industry as a center of excellence for the Nordic languages and English. So uh, that's our niche, and I think that's how people know us. So the company is headquartered in the UK, in England, and we are possibly the the world's largest regional language specialist. How do you quantify that as the largest regional language specialist? Well, I mean a company that specializes only a, a small selection of languages. So not an SLV, which I think mainly works with one target language, right. but but a handful handful of target languages. So not trying to cover all the languages of the world. Anu, thank you for that introduction. That, that makes uh, things a lot clearer. Please describe how did you find yourself in the translation industry? Was it by, cho- by choice, uh, by design or by accident? <laughs> well, my route to this industry was simply a story of a girl meets a boy. So, like I said, I'm from Finland, and I was backpacking in Europe in the late 80s, and I met this British boy. He was also mm-hmm. a backpacker, and this was before I even went to university. And um, we got together, we got married, and um, I did a course to become a TEFL teacher, 
And then we taught English as a foreign language together for quite a few years. And then around the same time, I decided to test the level of my English. I was really pushing myself and I um, decided to apply for the, the translation program at the University of Helsinki. And in those days, it was a five-year program and it led to a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And English was probably the hardest language to get in with. So, you, you know, you had to do two days of on-site tests as, as part of the application process. So I did that. And then I kind of forgot it. And then about three months later, I got a letter from them saying that I had been accepted on the course. I was quite surprised. And uh, so I, I went ahead with it and I did it. And uh, now, now today, like 28 years later, 28 years after I graduated from that course, <laughs> I look back at my career and I can see that I have worked as a translator for only three years. So 28 years in the industry, only three as a translator. What did you do with the rest of the or the 25 years? Um... <laughs> I got were... into <laughs> I got into project management very very early on, and then honestly, you give me a job title, and I think I've done it. I mean, I've been an operations manager, HR manager. I've tried to run a language school as well, um, and and like I said, now I'm a managing director. So yeah, I've tried a few things. Congratulations on your journey. I think you are a true veteran, and and you've accomplished quite a lot. Um, it, it's Can something to be celebrated. Please. Can I say one thing, Sultan? Um, when I talk to young people, people who are studying languages these days, they they tell me, they all tell me the same story, that they are in this because they love foreign languages. And I just want to put it out there that I didn't study translation because I love foreign languages, not, not even English. Um, I wasn't even very good at them at school, you know. Um, what I was really interested in, and I still am, is is my own language. And I think that's something that translators should be interested in. So I really like doing creative things in my mother tongue. I think that's really exciting. So for you, it was also kind of a journey of self-discovery in terms of your own language and uh, cultural identity. Absolutely. And, you know, all the things that you can do with language, because you will always do those things better in your own own language. However well you, you learn other languages, you will never achieve the same kind of mastery. On that note, Anu, tell me what did you find surprising about the Finnish language as you were learning and studying it? Well, it's very different from many, almost every other language that that you know I've come across. That's right. the first thing, and I, I always say this, and, and my countrymen are not very happy about this. I, I always say that it's, it's quite a useless language. You know, if if it's your mother tongue, it doesn't really help you to learn any other languages because it's so unrelated to most of them. Whereas, you know, if you start as a, as a, I don't know, as a German speaker or, or even a Swedish speaker, you have a group of languages around you that you can pick up quite easily, but that doesn't work for Finnish. That's quite interesting. Maybe we'll have another conversation about that at some point in another episode, but, uh, and I'm, I'm very interested to, to learn how you characterize that. But getting back to our today's conversation, you've seen lots of changes and evolutions in, in the past 28 years, of course. How would you characterize and define these changes in this industry since you've joined? How, how have things changed? Well, the, the obvious answer to this question is is technology, but, but I'll try to draw out something else. Um, Clearly, LSPs, they, they offer a very different service. They, they offer a different range of services today than, than what we did 30 years ago. Right. If I look back at my very first translation job, which was in the pre-internet era, um, it wasn't actually even in the language industry. It was at an embassy in Helsinki, 
where I sat and typed translations of the, the Finnish newspaper headlines. So every morning from Finnish into English for the foreign diplomats who, who worked at that embassy. So I worked on the paper copies of the newspapers that that were delivered. And every morning I was sitting there flicking through the pages, noting down the, the main news. And then I typed them into a list on a manual typewriter. And I took photocopies of my list. And then I physically took them to each diplomat in their room. And if something in my list caught their eye, then then they asked me to translate the whole article for them so that they could learn what the Finnish papers were saying about their country or their region. Now, I think that's a very simple example of, of a translation service that became redundant a very long time ago. So the services have definitely changed. But mm -hmm. I, I also think that language service companies have matured as businesses because the whole industry has matured. And, and we now have things that we didn't have 30 years ago, like we have market research organizations that specialize in our industry. And that has helped us as companies to, to really improve how we do business and how we structure and how we grow our companies. So you mentioned something very important. You said that that art of translation, the way you did it pre-internet, pre-computers um, basically, that that has vanished. I'm sure it's been replaced by other ways of, for example, data collection and, and um, the media analysis. Do you see our industry adapting to address those gaps? Of course. And, and that's another change that we've seen is that, that you know, there are many more roles And, and jobs in the industry now than, than when I started. And I think that's a great thing. Um, you know, different people can come to the industry and do things that interest them and, and, and different gifts and, and skill sets are, are coming to our space. And, and, you know, another thing that we've learned along the way is, is, you know, we are now giving really cool, nice names or, or labels to, to our job roles. So we have things like Instead of just having translators, you know, we have things like language leads and then right. we have solutions architects and we have program directors and, and talent managers. And yeah, I think we are much more with it as, as an industry today than, than we were then. Let's uh, zoom in on the subject of our conversation today, Anu. Uh, our industry is very unique in that we provide a service uh, when there is demand. We will be talking about how to balance supply chain based on sales and uh, sales forecasts. Please tell me about the relationship between vendor management and sales. Well, you often hear that people talk about there being friction between those two departments right. because, you know, it's... It's, it's a classic that the, the sales team thinks that, no, your job is to deliver whatever we sell. And then the vendor managers say, oh, no, 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 no. Your job is to sell what we can deliver. So, right. so yeah, there is a risk of misalignment between those two teams. But before we talk about that, can I just take us a step back and, and talk about how I think an LSP operates? Please. Because earlier in the series, you, you talked with my um, countryman, Richard Brooks. And, and he said something that I really liked. He said that the business of LSPs is ultimately matching a collection of clients to a collection of translators and adding value in the middle. Right. And it's, it's the, the middle thing. I would like to say something about what happens in the middle because, you know, we provide professional services and we don't usually call them the magic that happens in the middle. We don't call it production, but let's, let's do that just to make things simple. When I talk about production, I, I mean, obviously, everything that belongs to project management. So everything from file prepping to setting up the translation environment and everything from scheduling to translator selection as well. But I also include the work that goes into 
scoping the service and and designing the steps in that service process right. and and that work okay we don't have to do it separately for each project but it needs to be done and and it's not something that the salespeople do or the vendor management so so there is this element of planning and doing and running our production and and most language service companies don't have a specific service team that designs the services or a, a product development team so it basically it means that when our clients want something new or something modified f- from the standard we scramble and it's both the production team and the vendor management team that that scramble so if we want to focus on this potential misalignment between the teams it's it's not only between the sales team and the vendor management team it can be between any two of those three teams um the production may feel that the sales team overpromises and then sales feels that vendor managers are not agile enough and the vendor managers feel that well they work hard to introduce new sub- suppliers to the company which the production team completely ignores whose job is it to address that conflict i mean is that a strategic vision that was not properly defined and communicated that resulted in this or is it because lots of translation company owners do not have the business background and acumen to properly design a service and and stick to that well i'm sure it's a mixture of all of those things and and it is the 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 basic dilemma of what we do that we are providing a professional service and yet it's it's often bought as a product or like we we tend to say commodity so there is that dilemma like how do you have professional service packages ready already designed and and already packaged when the um needs and demands of our clients can be so varied and different from what i understand your organization's model is a mix of in-house and outsource uh, suppliers please explain both the pros and cons of this model what works for you what does not work for you we we at sandberg have always had a large in-house production team which basically means that we have a lot of in-house translators and then we have these production people as well who who design the service right and i i guess that makes us a little bit different from many other lsps so we don't just facilitate the linguistic work or or you know prepare it or or manage it we we do it. and for that reason it really matters to us how the work is done and how it gets done so yeah so more than half of our staff work in a, in a linguistic role currently i think that's 68 people out of 122 and uh because our main business consists of translating into only five target languages we have five language teams in house and and they are each large enough to do a big chunk of the actual localization work so so they are not there just for quality control purposes for example which would be of course a very valid reason for having an in-house translator team as well right and and then yes of course we work with contracted partners as well many of whom are actually ex in-house translators who continue to work with us after they set up as as a freelance So yeah you asked me about the pros and cons well it's easy for me to talk about the benefits but i guess there are cons as well um there's definitely an increased hr admin burden because we have staff translators living and working in countries where we don't have any other operations mm-hmm. and and yeah we have an in-house recruitment pipeline that requires constant effort which is in addition to our vendor management pipeline but i think that the pros uh, by far outweigh outweigh the the cons um because what we have here is is a talent pool whose capacity and skill we don't share with any other lsp and we can invest in their 
professional development and, and in their specialization. And we know that we will reap the benefits of, of that investment. And this team also makes it possible for us to have very effective quality control. And we can train and onboard new talent very quickly, which helps when our clients need us to scale up fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also, what's interesting is, is we're also able to constantly evaluate the costs, you know, the cost of salaried translation staff against the cost of freelance partners. And we're also able to assess some other things like how different technology solutions impact on the translator's productivity or even their job satisfaction, which which really brings me back to what I said earlier, that we have an interest in how translators are made to work these days. And, and maybe I could even say that because we have in-house translators, we can understand freelance translators better and, and maybe work with them better as well. Is that a model that is sustainable for the long term? Well, if I knew that, I would probably be, uh, I would sleep much better. <laughs> um, I don't know. It requires uh, a lot of, um, it's a model that needs a lot of revenue streams coming from a lot of different sources, especially with languages like ours. You know, the Nordic languages tend to be maybe tier two languages or, or you know, they are not the, the biggest volume languages. So you need a lot of small revenue streams coming from multiple sources to, to keep you busy. And, and you know, to, that, that, that's the way you get the volume of the work that keeps you going. Does vendor management or supply chain management work closely with sales and business development? I, I've seen in many organizations where these business units work in, in silos, uh, creating an imbalance of resources, uh, which either they have too many suppliers or too few, and that's a problem. Where do you draw the line in your case? Well, I, I certainly think that they should work closely closely together. Um, I mean, if you work in a very narrow field and if you have a very established set of services and then then maybe you don't need to look for new suppliers all the time but then your your challenge might be that your project managers don't use all the vendors that you have in your database so if for example you approve vendors for certain client accounts um, they need to work on those accounts regularly to to maintain the expertise that got them there in the first place Um, and if you build a team for your accounts and then you match their capacity to to the highest peaks that that the account has the highest peaks of volume, then what, what do you do with the rest of the year? Um, you've got a big team and you haven't got enough work for all of them. Do you dish out uh, work evenly amongst all of them so that they can all keep up their expertise or, or or do you keep some of them really busy, which helps secure their availability, but then some of them don't see any work? It's really, it's an interesting dilemma and, and I think different LSVs have solved it differently. So they, they give their vendor management teams different levels of power. So I know some companies where the role of vendor management is just to bring in new vendors and then it's up to the project managers how much work those vendors get, if, if any. Whereas at other LSVs, vendor management actually controls very tightly which translators are approved for what work and, and they monitor the PMs and they make sure that the PMs only give work to those approved people. So I would say that the more variety there is in your projects and, and the more appetite your company has for new new types of work, new revenue streams, then the more closely your sales and vendor management have to work together. 
sales should be a proactive and, and also a reactive activity. For example, we're constantly trying to build relationships, hoping that they will turn into business at some point. And there are clients who find us to get their work done. Would you say that a vendor management team must be ready for both types of scenarios? Uh, if not, uh, how do you design a service around that so that you're constantly ready to respond to market needs? Well, obviously, if the sales team is building a relationship with somebody and they keep the vendor management posted on what's being discussed, then then I would say, yes, the, the vendor management and, and the service design people, they have time to get ready. So they should. But I, I wouldn't say that it's vendor management's job to provide a solution every time an, an unexpected opportunity turns, turns up. And unless by a solution, you mean that, okay, they need to maintain a large enough network of contacts across our industry and and they should always know somebody somewhere who can handle anything that comes along so if you're happy to accept that sometimes your solution may be that you just pass the unexpected work on to somebody else you know then then yes then you can expect the the team to be ready for both of those scenarios the planned work and the unexpected work as uh, the leader of our organizations we are all responsible for uh, defining the vision and strategy to get uh, to that vision. W- would you say some of the major issues or disconnects uh, between sales and vendor management is because there is no clear vision? I-, I know you alluded to this earlier, but I would like to hear your your response to this. Well, I would say that there may be a vision, but the teams can still lose sight of that vision if the going gets really tough. You know, and, and there's probably more temptation for the sales team to to veer away from the agreed path because. You know, the sales team, they may try really hard on on the strategic path that you've chosen. But if they meet with constant rejection and and constant barriers on that path, then, of course, they will look elsewhere. And whatever your vision is, I I think it's always bound to be a bigger challenge to one of those teams than the other one. Because, you know, you may have a service that you can produce without any sweat, but then the sales team would struggle to, to sell it, maybe because there is a lot of competition for that service. Or, on the other hand... You might know buyers, you know, who who want to have this fab new service and they would buy it, you know, tomorrow if only you could produce it in in a profitable way. So I would say that either sales or vendor management will always be more out of their comfort zone. So one of them will be more out of their comfort zone than the other one. Mm -hmm. And I think one way that that you as the the leader or as the manager, you, you can get the teams to work towards the same goal is to make sure that they're. KPIs are aligned because it's very easy to set up KPIs in in silos. I think um, like when it comes to vendor management, many LSPs track the average vendor cost for, for a given product. So let's say the average word rate in their database for translation into Swedish, and and if they manage to keep that average from going up each year or maybe even reduce it, then then they are very pleased with their vendor management. But that, that, that's just a number, but but this this great result may not benefit their business at all in terms of revenue growth or, or improved profit. If all of those translators in their database who have that great rate are freelancers who actually have no free capacity to offer you. I think we as, as managers and leaders should stretch ourselves to, to come up with more meaningful KPIs and actually KPIs that inform our teams in, in real time. I mean, we really tried at our company to to come up with such things. And, and for example, for, for vendor management, um, I've got some KPIs that I feel are more informative. Um, 
in, in the sense that they inform our sales team in their daily work. So our vendor management reports regularly about how much capacity we have in our talent pool for a given service if we sell that service at our list rate. And, and because they're tracking this, it gives the, the sales team immediate confidence that, that they know that we already have an affordable solution in place if they manage to sell something. How often should vendor management touch bases with sales to ensure um, that the organization is fully prepared for the work that would be coming in? Hmm. Well, in the ideal world, um, it should be a, a continual looped in process, I think. So I would say weekly or at least monthly. And, and it doesn't have to be that time consuming. It could be just, you know, headline notes and, and bullet point summaries. That being said, can you elaborate on the strategic importance of uh, defining the process for clear communication between sales and, and vendor management? Yeah, well, these are busy teams, aren't they? And because they are so engrossed in their daily work, you really need somebody else to to take a like a helicopter view to spot where the gaps in their mutual communication might be. Um, we actually started something new recently, and it's it's really simple. I I realized that we needed an an internally shared map of the services that we provide. Right. Because you know, do you have any idea? of the number of different types of services that our industry offers. And there are so many, like Slater published a report last year where they listed at least 150 different services, you know, just just, just a label for a service. And I'm, I'm sure that if I, if I went to my teams, if I went to anybody in our company, I couldn't find one person who knew what they all mean. So, so in this map, so we've got this service map. And in this map, we, we list all the services that the language industry is talking about. And then we try to add a definition for each and, you know, really like write down what that service con- consists of. Uh, because, if, you know, different people use the same words to mean different things. And, and we want to make sure that both our sales team and our vendor management team, they understand the scope of each service in the same way when they talk to the clients and then when they talk to the suppliers. So we do that and then we go and we identify the services that we are willing or, or able to do. And then we all commit to that scope of that service. And, and then it's, you know, the way that is, it's documented in that map is, is the way we understand it and talk about it. And, and if we then work with a client who wants a modified version of that service, then our sales team knows exactly where the deviation will be and they can point it out to the, the production team or the vendor management team when they bring that new work in. Most of the companies that I know and in, in the industry, either they want to duplicate what someone else is doing or um, they've been doing something for too long and they don't know why they continue to do that. So this is more like a, a self-discovery type of um, an initiative. But a question arises from that, like, um, you know, you mentioned that sales will um, try to adjust or modify these services uh, when an opportunity comes in and a client wants it a certain way. So in order for that adaptation to happen, um, you would certainly need your vendor management to be on board and to to help you craft that type of resource um, uh, supply that that would um, address that type of um, adaptation, right? H- how do you of try course. to achieve that? Of course, of course. But at least our starting point here is better than just starting from, you know, not not knowing what we're talking about in the first place. So at least Absolutely. if you've defined if you've defined each service and your salespeople go and talk to a client and and they start talking about some 
new fancy AI related content creation kind of service, you know, you've got some sort of markers that you put down on the map saying, okay, this is how we understand this service. Do you mean something else? Do you mean something different? And and our vendor management has got that same understanding. And then if the if the salespeople discover that, you know, client wants something else, they come come and talk with our production, you know, that the people who designed the process and, and the vendor management and say, yeah, this is pretty much what we already have, except that they want to tweak it here. And yeah, of course, we have to spend a bit of time in, in creating that tweak or the, the solution for that. But at least we don't scramble from nothing. Going back to sales, it's the probably the main defining factor for the outcomes of vendor management activities because our entire organizations revolve around sales. What other business units affect vendor management? Well, there's that unit that designs the solutions, like I said before. I mean, right. it might not be a unit, it might just be a person in your company, but somehow we, we all do it. And, you know, at a different LSB, this, this person or this team might be sitting under production or they might be under technology or they might even be under account management. So they, they definitely ha- have a say, don't they? And, mm-hmm. and then it's, of course, the pro- project management people need to work very closely with, with vendor management as well. And I think that you need to establish uh, processes for the PMs for for starting to use new suppliers, and and then you need to have a process for the vendor management to monitor and manage the performance of the new suppliers as well. Because if you don't have them as as mechanisms, then I think the PM team won't have the confidence to work with new talent, and they will always just go back to the same old people they already know and they feel safe with. We talked earlier about um, the alignment between vendor management and and sales. I think uh, project management would also be fair to to be added into that equation. But uh, all of this should start uh, at at service definition or what I would term as business development, how you develop a business from scratch. So what you're selling, who's going to provide the service and who's going to buy it and, and how you're going to do it in the middle. So how often should that process or, or that line of thinking happen in the organization? Who's responsible for it? That's an interesting question. I, I guess it comes down to the to the top management and also to the success of the company. I mean, if you're growing very fast, doing the same old, same old, you're probably not not challenged to to look for changes very quickly. Right. Whereas if if the opposite is true, you you need to you need to change something somewhere because things are not going well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so circling back on on sales, um, I know how often is the case that salespeople confidently sell something, knowing that the company has the proper resources. Uh, again, vendor management. Ideally, you should only be selling something if you have the right resources and can produce the best results. But we don't live in an ideal world, as you said earlier. We have to adapt things as we go along. What type of complications can arise from such an oversight? Well, the first complication that comes to my mind is is loss of profit because you will probably end up incurring higher than expected production costs if right. you go ahead without having a solution. Um, and if we're talking about it from the customer experience point of view, then you will probably under-deliver on several fronts. I mean, either the product itself or the scope of what you deliver or the or the time frame or, or just the overall service. And um, and another consequence you will have to deal with is, is the bad feeling that it causes between your own teams, which we've already talked about. Right. And when it comes to resources, we are not talking about resources that work in a particular language combination, but also 
resources that specialize in certain domain knowledge or industry type. There are translation companies selling everything to everyone. What does it say about their resources when when they act like they are the know-it-all type? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to knock somebody else's talent pool, but I would say that it's common sense to, to say that the larger and more diverse your network of freelancers becomes, then the harder it is for your vendor management to evaluate them and, and their suitability and, and their performance. Right. And if there if there's no one else in the company who's able to judge the delivered work either, then it really needs to go through some additional quality assurance or, or review steps, which in, in one way or the other will will involve a second supply chain. And and that's not particularly cost effective, is it? Of course not. So I would say that a company that specializes has got a much more personal and much more culturally consistent approach to recruiting and managing human talent. And it often also means that their project managers or vendor managers are, are in a position to gauge the quality of the people and, and the quality of the completed work as well. Can you shed some light uh, on complications of reactive vendor management? One when people have to scramble, as you said earlier, to to address a client need. How often do you think that happens? And really, whose fault is it to be in that situation? Well, the main problem with reactive vendor management is obviously that you lose time at the start of the project when, when the team scrambles to find suppliers. And then as a result of that, you may decide to skip your normal processes. And maybe you won't vet everyone as thoroughly as, as you might otherwise. Right. And how often it happens, well, I think that depends on your company policy, because if your policy is to agree projects and and confirm the schedule with the client before you have secured a team of people to do the work, then I bet it happens all the time. And my experience is actually that most project managers don't choose to work that way. They would always rather secure a solution first. So if they have to do it the other way around, I would say that it's usually always because the management has told them to do that. And that explains a lot because uh, if you're a company that's well-disciplined and as you said, uh, you know, focuses on one specific area on a niche or specialization, then there's likelihood that you have already um, developed a framework and and as part of that framework, you have the right people to handle uh, the work when it comes in and you've defined the processes that they have to follow. Uh, am I correct in understanding that um, there are companies that are generalists and, and normally they will have to scramble each time a client is asking them for, for something that, that's outside their capabilities? Well, I'm I'm an outsider, so I, I can only say what I think as an outsider and I would say, yeah, sure. But, I mean, even a generalist company might not take anything and everything. So I don't think that it's the same thing to say that somebody's a generalist and, and somebody will just accept every request that comes their way and, and pushes it on, onto their teams. Um, I'm not sure that one necessarily follows from the other one. I understand. Now, translation companies have, often have these lengthy and sometimes complex recruiting processes, and, and that's for a good reason. Uh, how does that affect your ability to recruit fast, uh, which in turn could affect how they deliver executed projects, which affects sales? At the end of the day, it's about bottom line. Well, that, that has to do with risk management, isn't it? Um, right. I'm, not, I'm not sure that we can say that recruiting fast is, is even a merit in itself, but I would say that recruiting efficiently is definitely a merit. 
And efficiency usually comes from experience because you know, you know what you're looking for, you can spot it quickly, you can measure it objectively and, and you understand what the new supplier needs in order to come on board. So if you are willing to take some risk, um, you could start working with a new supplier before this whole process is fully complete. Um, you could carry on doing the real work and the assessment of the new vendor and the onboarding process all side by side. But I, I do think that it depends on your risk appetite. I understand. What can be done to improve hiring and recruiting practices and processes? How much would automation help? And uh, and please tell me what areas can be actually automated? Yeah, well, this depends, again, on whether you want something that is large scale and impersonal or something that is in-depth and, and committed. I think it's really important for us to remember that what we call resources are, are not some sort of nuts and bolts that we just stock on the shelves in our warehouse because right. we're talking about people and these people they might choose to jump off that shelf and walk away if they're not happy to stay there i'm sure that the, that the biggest organizations in our space are already using some form of artificial intelligence in in screening their freelancer applications ai can obviously be trained to look for keywords in the documents and and to grade them and to reject them, I think that's pretty normal. Um, I'm, I'm sure it could also be trained to to look for um, look for us online, you know, to, to crawl through the internet and look for any traces of of you, and then analyze those. So you know, somebody could be using it to to crunch through the sentiment analysis of every single thing that you you've published on social media, Sultan. So that could be done, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, nothing stopping it from from being a reality even today because you know the tools are there, the data is out there. Um, we know that sales and marketing are using these these techniques already. So why 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 not recruitment and vendor management? Um, I mean, you know, there, we we all have some shared um, challenges. I think when it comes to to vendor management, I think all LSPs have to deal with the really annoying fake translator CVs and 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 fake profiles and and. So I think because of that, we already all do some sort of background checks on, on the people who approach us for, for work. And then if you want to take it further further than that, I mean, I've heard of online interviews where you're actually interviewed by a robot. So the, the session is recorded, obviously, and then somebody assesses it afterwards. Right. Um, I mean, I, there's nothing new there. I mean, I've conducted online interviews as well, which, which have been recorded and, you know, we've done role plays in them and I've recorded them because I want to assess them afterwards. But mm-hmm. what I've never done, I've never used software in that assessment yet. Um, but I'm sure it's coming, you know. I, I guess that, you know, we will be taught how to write our CVs and our applications so that they attract the attention of artificial intelligence. You know, in the same way that we now design our websites because we have to design them with, with search engines in mind, don't we? Um, yeah, personally, I can't say that I'm looking forward to that day very much because I, I think it takes us further into this world where you know your your digital image and your digital presentation becomes more important than than your real life one i know you um touched upon a very important thing and and in the past like 
um, pre-digital age, I'm talking about when you apply for a job, you would provide references and, and all kinds of information so that your your potential employer can um, can can develop some sort of a persona to, to measure the, the character traits and so forth. But I think with uh, using artificial intelligence, now you have, um, it, it's very easy to inspect uh, someone's entire digital um, existence um, mm. from the time they went to, for example, um, high school and created their first Instagram or Facebook account until, you know, the point where they're applying for this job. I, I think there's a very good lesson for um, the people today who want to work with uh, language services companies. If you badmouth most of your clients, you know, because they are late in paying you or their issues uh, with whatever, at some point, someone else will pay attention to that and say, this is a troublemaker and I want to stay away from them. And, and robots can be trained to automatically do that. So what does that say about um, missing on, on talent, missing on, you know, like, for example, um, there could be a very good translator who sometimes goes and, and, and talks negatively or provides negative feedback. How would that affect our industry as a whole? What do people need to to adjust to that type of mindset. Maybe we all gravitate towards the kind of collaboration that we feel comfortable with. Yeah, I think we have different levels of tolerance in this and and, and different values, don't we? Uh, and we, we yes. tend to gravitate towards people who have something similar. So I guess that applies to, to LSPs and, and freelance translators as well. I mean, I, I like a, a collaborative approach. I think that in the long run, that serves you the best, but then not everyone agrees, you know. Um, some people will will go for the kill every time, and and that approach has served them well. But yeah, I mean, it's good to bear in mind that everything we say and everything we write down will will stay there forever. A hundred percent. Continuing on, on that note, technology has made things a lot easier, uh, as you're aware. Do you think? platforms that provide real-time information uh, to sales about what resources they have can help them make better decisions? Yeah, well, they would, but it's a bit difficult for me to see how each LSP could have their own real-time capacity platform when they all work with the same freelance partners, because right. the, the freelancers would have to constantly manually update their capacity on, on these multiple platforms. And, you know, that will never happen. Because, you know, translators are already unhappy with all the non-billable tasks that they're being asked to do as it is. Right. I mean, yeah, the principle is great. And it's a bit different if you have a talent pool that is entirely in your control, like we have with our in-house translator team. So because we are the only people who give them work, we can track their free capacity in real time from, from our own business management system. And yes, of course, that is very helpful. I'm sad to say this, but we are uh, reaching to the end of this interview. And um, while this conversation will continue, we have to dig more into all these great things that you've said um, throughout this conversation today. Um, I, I, if someone needed to get in touch with you and regarding what was discussed today or anything business related, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Oh, it's really easy to find me online because I'm, I'm pretty sure that I am the only Anu Carnegie Brown in the whole world. So if you Google me, <laughs> you will find me. Um, yeah, my, my LinkedIn profile is, is a good place to start. Amazing. Uh, Anu, I had a great time listening to you and learning from you, uh, literally. You, you are full of knowledge and information, and we are lucky to have you in our industry. I, I think you helped a lot of our colleagues today by sharing your experiences and, and learnings. 
um, I, I cannot wait to do another episode with you in the future. And uh, with that, let me thank you for your time and for sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. Anu presented a very interesting perspective on how you can balance out the resource availability with demand from sales and production. I think it is more than ever important to have that right balance in order to respond to any fluctuations in volume or to address inquiries for new languages and new specializations. Can you imagine if your sales team commits to a project involving Swahili language, for example, with medical expertise only to get an argument with your vendor managers later because strategically you don't service that language in industry? I think the leadership needs to play a decisive role in building that alignment bridge between these three prongs of a successful language translation company. Actually, our colleagues in the interpreting business also have to deal with resource demand and fluctuations, and this conversation applies to them as well. Alright, I had an amazing conversation with Anu Carnegie-Brown, who has been in the industry for almost three decades. As you heard, she has experienced every aspect of this industry, and today what she does in a leadership role encompasses all her experiences and expertise, where she adds value to their clients' businesses. I learned quite a lot actually and I am taking my notes to talk to my sales leaders, production managers and vendor teams. I'm sure you have learned at least one thing that you could apply to your business and that means we met our goal. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. Give us a 5 star rating and share your comments with us. That helps me learn what your thoughts are. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.